Welcome to the Stoyas Podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. As the 2020 Summer Olympics, postponed because of the COVID-19 pandemic, begin in Tokyo, we take a look at another Olympics planned under difficult circumstances, one that was never able to take place. The July 1936 Popular Olympics were planned to take place in Barcelona as a counter to the games held in Nazi Germany that year. But the Spanish Civil War broke out the day before the games were scheduled to begin. To tell the amazing story of these games and the anti-fascist athletes involved, I'm joined by James Stout, an investigative journalist with a PhD in modern European history and the author of the recent book, The Popular Front and the Barcelona 1936 Popular Olympics, playing as if the world was watching. So James, welcome back to the program. Thank you. So first of all, could you give us a bit of background about the history of the Olympics? Specifically, how did this tradition get started in the modern period and what was its purpose supposed to be? The, uh, the idea comes from this guy, Pierre de Coubertin, uh, who's a noble, and he starts this, this games which is supposed to evoke like the, right from the start, right, there's a lot of mythology which just isn't true around the Olympics. This idea that evokes this Greek ancient games where the world came together and they had a sacred truce around the Olympics and then they all played sports and then they went home and started their wars or whatever. And it was this sort of celebration of, certainly at first, like, like noble masculine virility. Uh, for instance, it enforced amateurism rules very strictly, but also very strangely. Uh, and that, that was just an attempt to keep the, keep the working class people out of these games, right? And the idea was always that it would move around, uh, that the youth of the world would unite. But again, that was sort of the, the youth who were colonizing the world in the 1890s, right, when this first started. Um, and it really has its roots in like this neoclassical thing. And then also the sort of British neoclassical, where I come from actually, the Cotswolds. Uh, we had this thing called the Cotswold Olympics. Uh, it's with a K, not a C, uh, but that involves more sort of traditional British uh, events like shin kicking and other like weird, very parochial British sports. Uh, so de Coubertin is this guy who's he's French. He's an interesting guy in some ways. He, he's sort of progressive in some ways he's not. By the end of his life, he becomes at least sympathetic to fascism. But he also just sort of is interested in doing some, some sort of sport for the working class stuff, as long as he doesn't have to touch them. Uh, yes, yeah, so a sort of product of his era, right? And he's very influenced by this British sports movement, uh, which emphasizes sort of obeying the rules, fair play, discipline of the body, uh, and muscular Christianity, right? So I think that's where it comes from. It's interesting because I think sometimes we see the Olympics as a very kind of egalitarian thing that anyone from around the world, if they, they're good enough, then they can compete in this event. But to learn that the origins of, of, of it are actually quite elitist. But I think when we think about that kind of ideal uh, that many of us have in our minds of the Olympics, then it's very surprising to learn that there were an Olympic games in 1936 in Nazi Germany. So how did those games uh, wind up happening there? Game, so the games were uh, in 1931, right? They met actually in Barcelona. Uh, now they met in Barcelona, this is the International Olympic Committee, right? Which has a delegate from each country. I think it has two delegates from each country. Those people vote and the majority or the plurality, but normally it's a majority because they get it down to two, then they vote. 
decides which city it will go to. You'll be people will be familiar with these from when uh, they're awarding the more recent Olympiads, right? Like the LA and Paris one. So it's a, people make a bid, they submit a folder. Those folders are all in Lausanne at the IOC. You can see them, and they say these will be our stadia. So they submit these packets. It's 1931, so it's a bit less formal. And the International Olympic Committee votes on them. Now, uh, what's interesting about the 1931 vote is that it's held in Barcelona. Uh, and I believe it's within a few weeks of the declaration of the Second Republic. So Spain is very much in turmoil. Now, so this declaration of republic, specifically like the, the absence of a monarchy, is very upsetting to the IOC, which is composed in large part of, of nobles, right? that counts dukes. It's people, who, the people who are sent to the IOC are the people who I talked about earlier. They went to a private boarding school and they sort of palled around playing polo with other European elites. And then they placed great value in sport because it was important to them because they didn't actually have to work, right? They're just uh, siphoning off the labor of the masses, we might say. They feel that sportsmanship is very important. And so they, they go to the IOC, right? And it's kind of a a nepotistic kind of job for, for titled nobles often in a lot of countries. So when they go to vote in 1931, it's pretty upsetting to them that they're choosing between Barcelona, which at the time has just, I mean, 1931 Barcelona, right? Like uh, Masia has just declared like a Catalan Republic within a federal Spain. The people are in the streets. Uh, the anarchists are very visibly present, which is unusual for a lot of the Duke so-and-so from, you know, rural England doesn't has not seen this before and then you've got Weimar Germany right which there's a feeling by 31 that we've kind of screwed Germany in in uh with Versailles right we there's also there's always been this class solidarity right between the German elite and the other European and international elites the voting is interesting right we because of what's happening in Spain there's a very low attendance at the 1931 meeting right and uh the way the votes are tallied is very interesting. It's somewhat unprecedented to allow people to vote after the fact by telegram, but that's what they do. Uh, it's not really a secret ballot. And there seems to be a lot of confusion about it. So if you go to Lausanne Archive, you can see that there's a sort of, for instance, a Canadian delegation will be like, hey, what's this? Why are we voting by telegram? I thought you had to go in person or you, or you don't get to vote. And they're like, oh no, this time we're doing it by telegram. Uh, there's a feeling that, a number of people who study this share that, that maybe that vote was rigged. But certainly by the time that the vote is over, there's a very clear split. And it's a split that sort of defines the direction the world is going to go in, uh, which is which is non-intervention, right? Which is sort of, you know, like this idea that the left is more dangerous. And so at the time, as I say, you have Weimar Germany, it seems more stable, it seems more vibrant compared to Spain, which, you know, there's still this Africa starts at the Pyrenees myth as well, right? Mm -hmm. which is what the Catalans are trying to fight, right? And it's very much a Catalan effort to bring the game to Barcelona. And so the vote, for whatever reason, goes to, to Weimar Germany, right? Now, obviously, in between 1931 and 1936, big things happen in Germany, right? And, and uh, it, there's a Nazi rise to power, Nazi seizure of power. And at various points around the world, these, these boycott movements spring up. Yeah, in fact, that, that was going to be my next question is if there was any pushback to this decision to have the games uh, in Nazi Germany efforts to boycott them. Yes, there's an international boycott campaign very much led, or I think sort of uh, the United States has an important role in that. Actually, and it's when we see these coalitions start to form 
mid-1930s by now, the Communist Party is taking its popular front approach. Uh, the United States Communist Party is increasingly gaining members, right, in, in the Great Depression. It's also making a big effort to advocate for Black Americans, right, after the Scottsboro case. Uh, it, it, it's, it's the Communist Party, the Labour Defence, I think it's the Labour Defence League, that funds their defence, right? So you've got the Communists, you've got the NAACP. It places Black athletes in a different, difficult position because the NAACP is saying, don't go. Not actually don't go because these guys are racist towards us. That's part of it. The large part of it is we want to show solidarity with Jewish people who are being oppressed in Germany mm. uh, be because we just don't like racism. And maybe, obviously, that allows you to build a coalition in the United States as well, right? right. So the NAACP and then Jewish groups, but also progressive Catholic groups. There's this publication called Common Wheel, uh, which you can find the, the archives of online, which is saying, like, hey, Germany, uh, like fascist Germany is... Um, not a Christian state, right? They're, they're doing this weird sun worshiping, Thule thing. Uh, and we don't like that, the German faith movement. Like, and they're they were persecuting certainly progressive Catholics. Mm -hmm. So you have progressive Catholics in there as well. Um, and it's this interesting coalition. Uh, and of course, it's opposed by Avery Brundage, right? Uh, Avery Brundage probably doesn't go into this. It's led, by the way, by Jeremiah Mahoney, the Amateur Athletic Union. Uh, they become these two like clashing forces, right? Uh, and and Brundage being the uh, head of the Olympic Committee in the U.S. Is that yes, USOC, later to be head of the IOC. Yeah, they, they form this block and they oppose it in the United States. Ultimately, they just lose a vote at the Amateur Athletic Union. So that's what it's doing in the U.S. In the U.K., there's also a strong boycott. So have a, a sort of semi-principled like of those elite sports people. Some of them are also interested in boycotting. You can see it in the uh, in the cabinet minutes, the British cabinet talking about the boycott. Uh, and we have the trade union congress, right? Trade union congress because of what's happening to unionists and leftists in Spain are opposed. Uh, but Britain pretty much says, well, we'll do what the Americans do. France, right? France elects a popular front government in 1936, the Leon Blum. He dillies and dallies uh, over where he's going to send a team to Berlin at all. And he gives significant financial support to the Catalan Games. He also hosts the conference, Sireo, uh, uh, which is the International Conference on Respect for the Olympic Ideal, which is where the Barcelona Games are proposed in April 1936. Right. So all over the world, we have people who see what's happening in Germany and say no. Uh, but the major axis of the boycott movement, I would say, is the United States. Yeah, that's a fascinating setup for what, of course, becomes the, the focal point of this, and that is these alternative games in um, Barcelona. So that's what we're going to talk about in just a minute after a short pause. All right, welcome back. So now that we've examined this larger movement to boycott these 1936 Olympics in Berlin, how did the idea of hosting an alternative games in Barcelona come about? Yeah, so that's a lot of a combination of a lot of what I've already talked about, right? So uh, in 1931, they proposed basically using the buildings they already had for the World's Fair 
to host an Olympics, right? They're just going to refit them. And then we have this conference, this international conference in Paris. And at that conference, the Catalans, um, I should point out that Catalonia is also very invested in what uh, I call popular sport. I just want to point out that other people have called the popular Olympics the People's Olympics. The reason I don't, the reason I translate it as pop popular is because it, it's integral to the idea of a popular front and popular sport that we also have the popular Olympics, right? Those, those three things go together and, and like popular front is a translation we use for Frente Popular, right? So if we use the same translation, then, then we understand that those two are deliberately using the same word. So popular sport is a big thing in Catalonia, right? The ERC, the Catalan Republican left, has built its coalition uh, and used sport for everyone as a way of building that coalition, right? So it's bringing people together across language and class barriers using sport. This is their shtick. This is what they do. Makes the working class healthier and happier. Even the anarchists like it. It works well. So Catalonia is uniquely well-placed, right? They have the stadia and they have the outlook. So they pop up in this meeting in April 1936 and say, we'll do it, right? Like uh, a boycott is kind of... It, 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 you can't like there's no like manifestation of a boycott right it's just not being there and to be honest no one cares right no one cares if you're not at the olympics they're going to focus on the people who are because hitler's doing this amazing spectacle so they needed a counter spectacle and they needed to show i think that anti-fascism wasn't just something that old men talked about in the cortez or in the in france or in, in where you know old trade union men smoking pipes it was young, masculine, virile people, or young women, actually, they were very, very much invested in say masculine. Uh, they were very much invested in, in women, both as, as athletes and as warriors later. It was to show that there was this young, healthy face of anti-fascism. Uh, Orwell calls sport war without the shooting. And I think it, it's important to work out that uh, that's what they were doing here too, right? They were saying, yeah, you're not the only ones who can run and jump and, and, and throw stuff. We are too. And you mentioned Catalonia being a particularly good place for these games because of the facilities they had in this culture of popular sport. Could you tell us a bit more about that in um, Catalonia? Yeah, so popular sport is this idea um, that the the Catalan nation can be built or this sort of a popular Catalanism, right? And Catalanism had always been kind of an elite construct, right? Based in these, these elite things like going to the opera. Uh, poetry contests uh, like these manifestations of elite identity and it was very much rooted in, in this Catalan uh, like the sort of noble families idea right in, in, the, in the in the myth of the Catalan like farmhouse and the sort of Catalan rural existence it didn't most of the working class especially in Barcelona didn't speak, or I shouldn't say most because I'm not sure, but certainly a large amount of the working class didn't speak Catalan, were not Catalan born, right? Um, they often said they were, the sort of slur was that they were from Murcia and that they, they, these neighborhoods, you can see neighborhoods in Catalonia with signs saying like, uh, Catalonia ends here, Murcia starts here. So like that, that's, the idea is that the working class is kind of a separate nation. Um, and so what the ERC do, from the time they come to, they hold power throughout the Second Republic, if people aren't familiar, in Catalonia. Uh, certainly, like with Compange, he's, uh, he's the leader of the ERC and of the Generalitat, right, and therefore of Catalonia. He's actually defended some anarchists in his time as a lawyer, so that he's not as objectionable to them as many bourgeois politicians would be. And 
one of the programs that he facilitates, his government facilitates, is this building of sports facilities and the creation of, uh, of popular sports leagues, of access to sport for everyone, right? For working people, for women, uh, for children, right? They, um, they have all these sort of scouting movements and, and sort of these, they want to teach every kid to swim, right? No kids should drown in Catalonia. They want to teach women to swim. These women drown more in the early 20th century because of the ridiculous garments that they had to wear. There's this big sort of movement to use sport to bring people together right to give everyone access to sport and it's very much comes i think from this anarchist idea of the three eights right eight hours for leisure eight hours for work eight hours for sleep and and they want to use that leisure time and really create facilities and access to sports for catalans and they built a lot of stuff they were building a holiday city in near tarragona south of barcelona uh it, it never was finished but they were going to build this ideal kind of uh, you know, it's very much of the time right of the 1930s but the sort of relaxation camp for the workers where unions or sports clubs could take a week it's funny because now the area has these these all-inclusive resorts right where you can go and stay and you never leave the resort you know and you kayak one day and you snorkel the next day and that's what they right. wanted to build but like as a work a place for the workers to to recover from their labors yeah that's where it comes from it comes from this idea of creating a healthy strong uh and unified nation so how did um, Barcelona manage to organize these games as well as publicize them and finance them in such a short amount of time? And did they receive any support from the government for that? So the sort of financing the games is interesting uh, because Olympics now, again, are this sort of national chess jumping exercise where they're funded by the central government as a way to sort of show the world how great you are. Uh, we see it increasingly with the all kinds of spectacle events being given to like totalitarian states, right? Uh, but this wasn't the case in Barcelona. This wasn't for Catalonia, right? It was for the Popular Front and it was funded by the Popular Front. Uh, so we see contributions coming from Madrid, from the Catalan government, from the Barcelona City Hall, from Paris and from uh, Scandinavian, like I, I still am a little bit unclear if, it, if it's from unions i think it's from unions not not from government sources and then even in the uk right the tuc are selling stamps uh the trade union councils are selling stamps mm -hmm. to fund people right they're taking collections uh on bastille day in 1936 in france they have a little games a uh, little event where they, they take collections and it's and then like the unions will also do things in solidarity right so like uh france put on a free train most of the competitors came through paris they would come from Britain across the channel or from the US across the Atlantic land in Paris, take a free train down to Barcelona. Spectators could take it too, right? So that's how it was funded. It was funded very much through this process of international solidarity. It's very interesting. And you see these letters go out. Um, Warwick University has a few of the ones written to the UK and they're translated in English. People don't speak Spanish or Catalan, uh, which are really interesting. They're, they're sort of asking for solidarity and receiving it. Uh, because this boycott movement had already come together. So they already had a network, even though they only started in April and hosted the games in July. Um, so that's how they're funded, how, how they're organized. I mean, it's sort of classic Iberian leftism in a sense, when just like, it's like everyone to the barricades and, and it, everyone just sort of gets involved. Uh, it's funny to go to the archive and see like the, the few days before they're going out with these check forms. Still, it's July, right? The game start on the 19th. And they're going to hostels or people who rent out rooms. Uh, the hotels, they've already maxed out on hotels, right? And they're going, like, does this person have access to a toilet? Will you feed them at night? Like, 
and if, if you if you get three out of five ticks then okay well you, we're going to bill an athlete with you here's your form you know like you, know, you can cash this in for some money the athletes get a, an allotment ticket and they can stay with people or spectators can stay with, with citizens right and um, mm-hmm. they go to all this existing sports infrastructure and say hey we need this we need this where can we host this we want to have this event but we don't have a place to have it what can you do to help us uh and then they have like a, a sort of existing popular sport structure ministers government officials clubs and they pull all those clubs in right for the uh it's called the organizing committee of the popular olympics and that organizing committee which meets at cadsi like it meets at a union office at a catalanist union they come together and sort of say right well we know we need to get this done let's get this done and even like down to they're very into the big symbolic gestures, right? So like the night before, Pau Casals is going to conduct an orchestra which will play a song written by an exiled German-Jewish composer uh, with lyrics by uh, one of these Catalan poets who competed in these elite poetry competitions. And it's like this perfect symbolism of like old elite Catalanism meets like uh, contemporary anti-fascism, right? And Mm -hmm. that's exactly what they're going for. So, that, yeah, it's very much a community or like an effort based in this broad coalition, I guess. Right, and they already right. have, like I said, they have everything ready from the 1931 bit. They have the stadium. They have the Hotel Olympic, right, at Montjuic. It's going to be held in, in Montjuic uh, for the most part with some events like the ones that require special locations to be held elsewhere. And boxing is held downtown, but everything else is in Montjuic. You know, you mentioned um, several times that that you have the middle classes in Barcelona, as well as workers working together on this event. And yet, as you mentioned before, we often hear it called the Workers or People's Olympics and um, a link with communism. Are those descriptions at all accurate? Not really. I think that's misleading because there were existing workers' Olympiads before this, right? Uh, or Spartakiads or these were a different set of games on a different four-year schedule for a different group and not necessarily a different group of people but a narrower group of people right the workers olympics were for communists and they were huge and they were very impressive uh, and they were very fun but they were doctrinally communist um, they were not a popular front effort like this like you did not have the broader range of people coming so they absolutely and it's important, like, I think a lot of people maybe weren't be aware that, like, workers' sport was the biggest international sporting movement in the 1930s, right? It wasn't the IOC's Olympics. Uh, if you look at France, you look at the membership of the FSGT compared to the membership of, like, these elite middle-class sporting clubs. Um, it's much, much higher. There are many more people doing working workers' sport. But, like, France is a good example, right? So they normally have the FSGT, which takes its athletes to the Workers' Olympics, and often they do better performances than the elite athletes who go to the IOC, right? They jump higher, they run faster. Wow. And then you have the elite middle-class club athletes who go to the International Olympic Games, right? The IOC Games. What France does, it brings them together and says, we've got to have a trial where we'll, one will, you know, we'll all compete and see who goes to the popular front games. So that's what they're doing, right? They're not just, it's not just a communist games. And I think very often, and look, look the Soviet Union doesn't compete. Communism is not politically relevant in Catalonia in 1936, certainly like Soviet communism, right? Mm -hmm. Like anarcho-communism, sure, like the Poom a little bit, but not Stalinism. uh, And it's very easy and you see it in every like like general survey to call these the Workers' Olympics and they are categorically not 
because there is a Workers' Olympics after and a Workers' Olympics before, right? They, they're not in that four-year structure. They're not, they don't call themselves a Workers' Olympics. They explicitly say that they are not a Workers' Olympics, that they're an anti-fascist Olympics. So now that we have an idea of how this whole thing came together, I want to look at some of the people who actually came to Barcelona for uh, these games. So we'll talk about that after another short pause. All right, so now let's turn to some of the people and stories that came out of this Barcelona games that almost happened. James, to start out, what kinds of people came to Barcelona to participate in these games? There's a very varied mix of people, right? They made a big thing uh, about talking about the fact that they, they were very keen on having women. Uh, they said like, basically like, um, all over the world, women are not free and like, sport is a tool in women's liberation. Uh, Interestingly, Maria Ginesta, the lady who you've seen the picture of with the rifle, right? Like everyone see the pictures, ladies, she's sort of smiling. Uh, she was a hurdler. Uh, she was part, very much part of this popular sports movement, right? And like, it, it, I think it's important to link uh, women in warfare later with women in sport uh, at this time, right? So they're big on women, uh, but they still don't get uh, as many women as they'd like. A couple of individuals like maybe to talk about, they're very keen on having black people from the US. They very much wanted to make this argument, this solidarity argument, right? Mm -hmm. And that worked out for them, right? Like if you look at like uh, later in the international brigades, right, you have the Lincoln Brigade commanded by a black man. You have uh, black communists coming over to the United States, from the United States and, uh, and serving equally with white men, it's cool. So for instance, you look at like Charlie Burley, right? Charlie Burley is an interesting guy. He's a very, very good boxer. At the time, he's 19, but he he goes on to be probably the best, known as the best pound-for-pound pound fighter in the world, right? Lots of people would duck fighting him when he'd, like, up a weight class because he was, normally you would do that, right, in boxing. Uh, but, like, he, he was very gifted and, and was sort of very well respected among the boxing cognoscenti. But he's a mixed-race guy. He's from Pittsburgh. His mother is a black woman. His father's an Irish-American man. His father's a minor. Burley doesn't want to go, so he's invited to the 1936 Berlin Olympic trials, and he says no, right? He's, I don't want to go to this Nazi games. He's, he's sort of politically aware, even at a young age, right? Uh, so he goes to the US to fight uh, as a boxer, right? And then, like, with him, uh, one of the guys I'm focusing on in my next book is this guy called Al Chaikin. And I, he, like, sort of represents the experience of a lot of international brigadiers and a lot of uh, the US team, and that his family were Jewish. They had fled pogroms in Russia. And he is a first generation American. He left when he was five, actually. So he, he was technically born in Russia, but grows up in the United States. He, basically, he, he's fortunate enough uh, and white enough to be able to use his sport to get himself a, a scholarship to Cornell, right? That he really, like, he works for it. You know, like, if you look at the guy's face, it just looks like it's been punched a thousand times and his nose is sort of off at 45 degrees. And he, he again, goes to Olympic trials, injures his knee, he went to the 1928 Olympic trials and just his knee retires, becomes a community college uh, instructor, actually. That's where he is when they 
ask him, he's part of the Communist Party, he's part of the Faculty Anti-Fascist Committee. He, he's he's going to go as their coach, right? So they're like two generations of fighters, right? Jake is a wrestler, Burley's a boxer. They're both there in Barcelona in 1936. They go together and Chaikin is sort of very instrumental in kind of trying to keep these young kids from running around drinking and doing all the things that they, they couldn't do in sort of Depression-era America, right? Especially Burley couldn't do, right? On the, on the American side, you have these, these young idealistic kids, you have these old trade union communists. Uh, the biggest contingent come from, obviously, from Spain. Catalans, Basque, Catalonia and the Basque country were to compete as separate teams. Uh, I will try and say this in German, Yiddish Arbeiter Sport Club, which is the Yiddish Workers Sport Club. It, it basically, it, it's at this point that many exiled, right? They're mostly in Paris, and they are exiled German Jews, right? Who uh, they, they they're sort of a, a part of a Jewish workers movement. Mm-hmm. They're competing, right? And they'll compete with other exiled Jews of Europe under that banner. Obviously, like. If you are German, you don't want to fly the German flag in 1936 if you're also Jewish, maybe because of, of the way Germany is treating Jewish people, right? So they're competing as nations, not states. Uh, so we have these exiled German Jews. We have exiled German Italian anti-fascists, right? the people who couldn't stay in Germany or Italy because of their political views. Uh, and actually, the the warm-up event for the Popular Olympics uh, was called the Copper Talman after Ernst Talman, the Antifa leader who was imprisoned by, by Adolf Hitler, right, later. He spent like 11 years in solitary confinement before he was shot. They explicitly were like indexing anti-fascism with their warm-up event, right? And then we also have just adventurers, right, just like in the International Brigade, sort of these, uh, especially with the Brits, you know, these kind of noble people who are just like, oh, I'll give that a try. People who maybe couldn't have, certainly some of the Canadians that Bruce Kidd talks about might not have qualified for the Olympic Games. Um, and then we have like the Swiss have a very strong worker sports movement. So you have some very gifted athletes coming from Switzerland, many of whom have competed in previous Olympiads in, for instance, Los Angeles in 1932, right? So it's a real mix of ideological people, of athletes, and of people who like might not have been ideologically committed to anti-fascism if fascism hadn't come for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for some reason or other, it, it has, right? Uh, and then Catalan and Basque nationalists who want to compete with their flag, not the Spanish flag. Uh, Spain doesn't send a team to 1936 Olympics officially, government-funded. Uh, it was planning to send a, a equestrian team. So it's a real mix of people, and I think that's what that's what makes it fascinating. Uh, it, it's all kinds of circumstances that force people to be there. Yeah, and that reminds me of a question I forgot to ask you earlier, because you mentioned that the different events that they were going to have at the Barcelona Games was a little different from what we might expect at an Olympics. What were some of those events? So like the fun ones are like the, I think it, I think they have like a 10 by 100 and maybe 20 by 50 meter relay in the opening ceremony. And the whole point of that is like, you have elevated your population to health and well-being, right? The working class of your nation are healthy, uh, not you have, they've wanted to do away with the individual performance, right? Like we look at the Olympics now, it's this one girl, this one guy is a freak, right? Like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and and like they represent the whole nation maybe, but really it's about that individual, right? It's not about how that nation has elevated its working people to health. So you do 50 people, 
which it just seems like a kind of wonderful and like very like school sports day to me like like you know to, to see the power lifters just giving it their best to run 100 meters in a relay or something and they also had these mass relays in the pool and so those like they served the function of popular sport they would have been hilarious to watch and sadly they don't exist in the current olympics and they had to be competing in other events right you couldn't just bring 10 sprinters mm-hmm. and draw them from your team they also have three tiers right they have like elite uh, and then like regional and then like lower level amateur uh, so it, they, again they're not about the elite performance they're about everyone taking part right so there are in some competitions there are three tiers of athletes you can come if you're like a Sunday league sort of weekend warrior person and you could still compete win your own little medal there and then uh, they have power events for women right which the IC isn't into right uh, they don't want women to throw stuff be big be strong that's not what they want women to look like be like so they didn't do that popular front is is at least sort of uh in its doctrine committed to women being big and strong and equal of men right and uh, you have this club the catalan uh feminist and sports club it's feminist first and then it does sports it's not a women's sports club they're, they're big in promoting these these women's events right women can run further and and jump stuff and do stuff the ioc won't let them do those events are really interesting as well. Their ideology is very much reflected in the events. Uh, and then there are a couple of events. I don't think they had any equestrian events. Uh, they, they tried to do away with martial events, right? Like events that celebrated like warfare, the events that like, we're talking about off record, the, the events that uniformed army officers would normally compete in and did compete in in Berlin, like you can see in Reifenstahl's film. Which wound up being tragically ironic because even as they were trying to uh, move away from that kind of mentality, of course, a war broke out um, just the day before the games were set to begin, um, the, the coup attempt against the Republican government uh, that I mentioned at the beginning of the program. So what was the experience of being in Barcelona at the outbreak of this conflict like for these athletes who came from all over thinking they were going to participate in this sporting event. It's, it's chaos. It's, uh, you know, uh, it's civil war, right? But uh, as I'm sure you know, everyone knew by the 19th of July that this was going to happen, right? Uh, there's this fun anecdote of uh, Paul Casals is, is conducting the orchestra the day before and uh, someone comes in, bang, 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 stop your practice, right? Like uh, the army has risen up and he says, yeah, well, you know, like, it, it, this isn't a great surprise. So he says, I don't know when we'll see each other again. We should finish up our symphony before we leave. And then they all go off and never see each other again. And many of them die, right? Very sad. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, the, the Spanish people knew this would go, the Catalan people knew this was going to happen. But for the athletes, they did not. Many of them didn't speak Spanish, right? And it's uh, somewhat chaotic. If you look at a map of Barcelona, you look where Montjuic is, you look where the barracks are. Diagonal is like one of the... Um, this is a street that the army come down, the street that the workers blockade, right? Um, so like, the first day of the civil war in Barcelona is, you could write a book about the first day of the civil war, about the 19th of July, right? Uh, yeah. The workers know what's going to happen for the most part. Compagnes doesn't want to arm them at first. Uh, they go and arm themselves anyway. They build barricades. And some of these popular Olympians, like the American team, um, speak a lot about them because one of them wrote a diary, Bernie Danchik. He's a gymnast, he's Jewish, uh, he's a clerk in a factory, but he wrote a diary. And he says, first of all, they wake up, they've not slept well because it's 
first day of the games anyway, and then they hear they think it's cannon fire. It's not, but they're just not familiar with. Uh, I mean, there were there were artillery pieces actually. Um, there's a cool story where the anarchists persuaded the soldiers using these light artillery guns. They sort of walk towards them like I surrender and talk to them for five minutes and like you're working class too, and they turn the guns around, start shooting wow. back at their officers. <laughs> so there they were cannons, but uh, these guys are, are shocked, right? But then. For many of them, I think, and I would encourage people who, who want to read a first-hand account of this to read Savage Coast by Muriel Rukeyser. Don't know why that book is not more widely set, read by people in our career, uh, but it's a great book. She's a great writer. Uh, she was there for Esquire of all publications. Uh, she also wrote an article called They Came for the Games for Esquire. They are all in this Hotel Olympic for the most part, right in which week. They wake up to the sound of gunfire. First of all, they're told to stay in their rooms. The Germans and Italians, many of whom were already living in Barcelona, right, because of the Republic's relatively open asylum policies. They also know it's going to happen. And some of them are out the night before, actually, once they hear of the rising uh, down south, right, in, in, in Africa, which happened on the 18th. So they know this is coming. They go out that night to the, to the homes of people who they knew were Nazis living in Germany, and uh, in some cases, capture weapons, or living in Barcelona, sorry, right? And, and they're, they're able to look, okay, well, there's a stockpile of guns here, that's strange. You know, they kick down their doors and, and they stop those being handed out. Um, but for most of them, I think it's a shock. Uh, like I say, the UF athletes get out there and they start helping build barricades, right? They grab pickaxes, they grab cobblestones, they start building barricades. They don't know what's going on, but like, um, it's a great George Orwell quote about like, oh, when I see a real flesh and blood worker in conflict with a policeman, I don't have to ask myself what side I'm on. And it's sort of a similar sentiment, right? Like uh, one of the things Frank Payton, who's a black sprinter in the UST, writes about is he's amazed to see like women are directing these combat squads that are attacking the, the army, right? And he's blown away by it. And it sort of, it really resets his perceptions, right? And they start to join in, right? And they're welcomed for the most part as sort of brothers in arms. The next couple of days are very tense, right? After so the, most of the coup is put down by the end of the 19th of July. Uh, the next day, Deruti and Ascaso and the friends of Deruti and the sort of anarchists assault the barracks, San Andreu. And that's sort of the end of the coup, right? That, oh, in Barcelona, obviously, mm -hmm. goes on for 40 years. It's very tense, right? There's quickly, the Catalan anarchists are in control of the city, right? Um, there's this sort of fun perhaps apocryphal sort of compound speech where he says like the power is in your hands if you want me to be another foot soldier I will the anarchists start forming militia columns and they're marching through the city so they athletes like well I guess everyone's marching like we should march and they, they do an athletes march right where they sing the international in their languages and the British team somehow has bagpipers who they have bought with them uh, perhaps there was a cultural olympiad which was common at the time right like a they would do traditional cultural events alongside the sporting events, uh, build castells and, and do Catalan dances. And other countries would demonstrate their music and dances too. So perhaps that's how the Scottish bagpipers came. But mm -hmm. the bagpipers lead playing the international. They all sing the international. Uh, many of them then leave on a steamship. It's called the Ibiza. And they go home to their countries, right? And they say, look, we've seen what this looks like. And we've seen what like the working people in arms can do to a, a a theoretically professional organized army, right? The municipal army in Spain was kind of a shit show, but they, they were very impressed, right? And they knew like, like it, it's not a million miles away from what could have happened in France or the UK. For some of them, they go home. For some of them, they don't go home, right? For Germans, the Italians, they, they 
Yiddish Arbeiter Sports Club, uh, they, there's no home to go to, right? The only way those guys are going home is like uh, you destroy fascism in Spain and then you take that momentum and that solidarity with your Spanish comrades and you destroy fascism in Italy or you destroy fascism in Germany. Uh, and that really seems like it's on the cards, right? Because they've just seen like a uniformed, well-equipped army routed by a bunch of men and women with uh, like blunderbusses and hundred-year-old rifles. And uh, it, it seems like it, that this is the future, right? So about 200 of them stay and join. They're not the international brigades. People say that too, but they're not the international brigades yet. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're the Centuria, right? Um, groups of 100 people, the Tom Mooney Centuria, the Parliament Centuria. Germany organized on national, national language lines. They go to Zaragoza. That's a different story, but the militias kind of get bogged down on the way to Zaragoza trying to fight in the rural areas that they're not very good at. Um, but they join up. They learn Spanish or Catalan, presumably, and nearly all die in Madrid. Yeah, it, it's very sad. Rukai's novel is really interesting. She falls in love with this guy who seems to be like forever her, like, I don't know, it's easy to fall in love with someone on holiday, I guess. Uh, but they, you know, they're, they're only together for a week, but they write, and then he he joins up. Right? He's a Red Front Kampfer, like a Red Front fighter, uh, so pre-Antifa, but German communist street fighter. Uh, mm -hmm. He joins, right? Uh, same deal, he can't go home. So you see her writing letters to him, he dies, she writes a nice poem about him, it's called 4OB. But yeah, there are a lot of them, 200 out of 20,000 odd, it's not a lot. But it, it's, a, it's a significant number of people willing to die for, you know, people whose language they don't speak. And then some of them come back, right, to this guy Al Chaikin I talked about. He goes home, he does fundraisers for the Republic, and is just overcome with this feeling of guilt and, like, solidarity, I suppose. And so he gets on a, gets on a, uh, a boat and comes back to fight the International Brigade with his wife, who, uh, who does an art therapy program for kids. Um, you can see the pictures, actually, they're in the UCSD archive. Uh, she does art therapy for kids who've been bombed. I understand you're writing another book right now where you focus on these athletes who went on to fight in the Civil War. So I don't want you to give away your book, but I was <laughs> wondering if you could uh, give us a couple of other uh, anecdotes of uh, some of these athletes turned fighters. There's a number of the British teams who are like pretty um, underdocumented. I'll, I'll be going back and looking in the archives when I can do so safely without, you know, pandemic restrictions. But uh, for instance, you've got like uh, George Hardy, right? Um, so George Hardy pops up in Bill Alexander's memoir. Bill Alexander, if you're not aware, is the commissar uh, of the IB, the, the British uh, International uh, Brigades, right? And he talks about Hardy being a member of the Workers' Sport Federation, right? So lot, most of the Brits who came, came with the TUC, the Trade Union Council, they were, they were workers. He actually leaves and comes back very quickly thereafter. So he's a print worker, and a lot of the, seems to go by union, right? Some of these unions were more radical than others. Mm -hmm. uh, and he actually serves until March, 1938. So he uh, misses the battle for Madrid, which is where nearly everyone dies. And he comes back and he's killed by a sniper on March, I think it's like the end of March, 1938. You've got an Irish guy, right, called Phil Gill Gillen. He's interesting. He serves with the Tom Mann Centuria, right? So the Tom Mann Centuria is a British pre-international brigade, but it's a British uh, militia, anti-fascist militia, I guess you could call it. 
the top man centurion is full of it, just these really eccentric British people. Uh, you've got Churchill's nephew. Uh, you've got these two British touring cyclists. So you've got these British guys. Al Chaikin, I think, is the guy I'm currently best read up on. So he comes back. He actually joins the uh, Mac Paps, right? The uh, Mackenzie Papineau Battalion, who are nominally Canadian, but include a lot of US people as well. He's a quartermaster. So he's doling out supplies and stuff. And he spends uh, another year and a bit in Spain before he's killed. The Germans and Italians are also interesting, right? You have a lot of um, a lot of German and Italian anti-fascists who sort of, again, the ones who come back, the ones who go home and come back are easy to document because they tend not to just die in Madrid before things are organized. Like uh, as, as things become more, mil- I think they call it militarization, right? Under the communists, uh, mm-hmm. things become, you, you have more documentation. Uh, those early militias, uh, it's, it's just people going to fight and it's very hard to trace them. And, and you also have like, these interesting people like Eileen von Palmer, I believe she's like a lesbian woman. She said she's Australian and she is living in Barcelona and ends, she's, she speaks a lot of languages. And so she does, she actually translates the publicity for the popular front into various languages. So like, she's interesting because all of her, all of my sources, like the ones I'm reading in French or English, the ones written to the US and the UK, that are translated by her, which is funny to think about. Obviously, the Spanish Catalan ones aren't, but she spends a while doing sort of propaganda for the Republic, right? She sort of goes down on the 18th of July to see what's going on. It's like, oh, wow, like this is what we've been reading about, what we've been writing about, you know, all these people sitting around thinking about the people in arms and now seeing the people in arms. Uh, There's a really good biography of her called Ink in Her Veins. She like ends up uh, leaving a little bit later, but she does some propaganda for the Republic, right? Translating of documents and stuff to the Republic. Um, then the biggest group of French, I haven't got to the French archive yet, but the largest group of people who stay, the largest group of International Brigade volunteers, the largest group of popular Olympians, they are all French, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, a number of them stayed and fought in the uh, in the early Centuria, right? So it's still kind of a, a nascent book project. Uh, I've got the chapters roughly outlined. Uh, but the US and British teams will be the easiest because they're pretty well documented. Well, those are certainly going to be a lot of uh, fascinating stories of the people with a lot of guts to just go and, and, and fight when they, when they thought they were just going to go to a, a sporting event. As we go to watch this year's Olympics in Tokyo, just wanted to ask one final question here. Are there any lessons from the popular Olympics that almost was in Barcelona that you think we should keep in mind? It's my opinion that Olympic discourse changes in 1936, right? Um, and it's not just the popular Olympics. It's the whole boycott movement. And it's this stuff that Jesse Owens does. And it's the, the, uh, the fact that we end up in a global conflict with the Nazis in 1939, 1941, depending on you know where people look back like huh i guess we actually platformed some really terrible people here and so that i think changes the olympic discourse to be like the olympics are for everyone i think we've maybe got away from that again now like the olympics are increasingly like a sort of a war without the shooting like orwell said right like it's it it's these states often these totalitarian states or these states that are in conflict sort of chest thumping at each other about the, the the virility and strength of their athletes and like it's a shame that 
the Olympics have become that. The Olympics are seemingly plowing ahead despite a number of international reservations about their safety during a pandemic. And that, I mean, that's the nature of the IOC, right? The uh, IOC is not, and I don't think will ever be a, a sort of globally, I've said this, they have indeed funded my research, uh, but like <laughs> a, a sort of democratic and representative body as hard as some people who I know there try. Uh, it, it remains an elite and increasingly a corporate uh, institution that exists to promote corporate interests. Thank you so much, James, for sharing this amazing story with us. And we'll be looking forward to more from you soon. And I understand you're going to have an article in National Geographic. So yeah, uh, yeah that's right. We'll keep our eyes out for it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.